The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. This is Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, across the river in Washington, DC. Today, we're going to be going to speak with a colleague in Europe. So we're going across the ocean today. Last week, we did something right here in the States down in Miami, Florida. Today, we're talking to Emma Riley out in Geneva, I believe she's at right now. She'll tell us in a minute. She is a UN human rights officer. But before I introduce Emma, remember to keep your questions coming. Uh, today, we will have a few that we will respond to. If you want to send them in audio format, please do so. You can use WhatsApp, Signal, or just email them to us. Thank you very much. We get a lot of ideas uh, for programs and guests from those questions, and we uh, appreciate the input. So many, many moons ago, probably for uh, most people listening to this podcast weren't even born when this happened. Uh, the UN system was created back in the late 1940s after the end of World War II. There was this process called the Nuremberg process, which we're not going to get into today. Uh, but it was really the first big attempt to create an organized system of dealing with uh, international human rights law. And a lot of it, of course, came after during the aftermath of World War II. And it has evolved, or as we'll talk about today, but potentially devolved in some cases into a system that includes an organization uh, called the United Nations Human Rights Council. And American taxpayers donate, invest. Uh, I say donate, invest, but some people say throw away billions of dollars every year into the UN system. And one of the many duties of the UN system is to be a guardian of international humanitarian law. And there's a lot of great people that work in this system. Some of them are, are, are uh, the unsung heroes of human rights law. We're going to talk to one of those people today. But then there's these other people, especially some diplomats from countries that frankly shouldn't even be on the Human Rights Council, who are doing some pretty ugly things. And a message, you know, for Americans listening to this podcast, especially folks here in Washington, D.C., and those working on Capitol Hill, please pay close attention to this podcast because it's a story that has been festering out there for several years. And today we're gonna to chat with Emma, who has been bravely trying to expose uh, some really bad things at the UN since February of 2013. She is a mathematics graduate from Cambridge and decided to go and become a lawyer, uh, earned her degree from Nottingham Law. Emma, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? No, it's all great. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And before we get into the subject matter, tell us how you came to uh, become a UN human rights officer. How'd you go from mathematics to law? Um, well, I mean, I, I think with math, maths, you kind of have a very defined career path. And I could see my what my entire career would look like. Um, at the age of 21 when I graduated, if I stayed in maths. And I spent a lot of my time on student politics, frankly, probably more than I spent on mathematics. Um, and just after graduation, my first job was uh, based in Hong Kong. And I volunteered there with Amnesty International um, whilst tutoring maths um, to kids. And it really, it, it was always my passion, right. Right? right? But I never really saw it as a career path. Okay. Um, so then I did a distance learning law degree at Nottingham Law School. And after that, I, I really wanted to enter international human rights at the outset. And you have to be bilingual to do that. So I moved to Paris um, and worked in an American law firm, actually, for a couple of years. And then I did what the EU has this um, European master's degree in human rights and democratization. So I did that. And 
then worked my way through several nonprofits specializing in prevention of torture, reform of prison systems, rule of law, death penalty. And in 2012, after a stint as regional director of an NGO in North Africa, I joined the UN. Oh, that's great. That's, that's a pretty diverse path to the, to the human rights law space. Um, believe it or not, a lot of lawyers go through that. In fact, I went through big law for a while. And um, it was it was a great experience, uh, and you get a lot of great training. Um, and I see that you've you. What do you think of big law? Just curious. What, how was that? Um, it was really interesting. Um, it was one of those things where I, I sort of describe. You know, it was always intended for me as a very brief period. Um, mm. I was effectively using a law firm to develop professional fluency in French. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Some people, okay, I'm going to throw an economic. This is the most economics you'll get from me because I went to law school and I did a law and economics uh, mm. training. And someone, some people, is this accurate to say that was a Pareto superior decision? Is that, is that? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Okay, that's it. For, that's it for me. That's all you're going to get because I'm not very good at economics or numbers, by the way. Neither one. Before um, we I'm jump, I'm very bad at economics. I'm good at maths, but not economics. Okay, I'm just curious about. Well, I'm curious about one thing. Let's go back to Cambridge for a minute. You said you were involved yeah. with a lot of politics, and I have some friends, other friends, who've gone to Cambridge. What was politics like? What What were you debating back then in Cambridge that had you so distracted? Um, well, parts of it was about the. Um, the investments. I went to Trinity College, Cambridge, which is the sort of richest Cambridge college. It was founded when Henry VIII took all of the wealth of the Catholic Church. Mm. So it's sort of the third richest entity in the UK after the after the state and the crown. I like the way um, you say, I like the way you say it. So they took it. They took it from the Catholics, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he <laughs> I took know. all the wealth of the monastery and all the land <laughs> and, you know, founded this college. Yeah. Um, and it was partially looking at sort of the investments and, you know, investments into um, arms companies, uh, issues around the environment. And then there was a, an effort, um, as, as you know, in the UK, we, we profited uh, from free education at the time I did it. And mm. there was an effort to increase our rent by I think it was 75% in a single year. Wow. Um, so I led student protests against that and you know, made myself very popular as you can imagine <laughs> with the authorities, but we did win. Um, they didn't go through with the uh, rather large rent increase. What? Well, you know, I guess that prepared you for this, this interesting battle that you're in now. And for people who may not be familiar with the UN human rights system, and what a UN human rights officer does in that system. Can you give us a little context briefly about where you fit in to this alphabet soup of UN entities? Sure. Um, I'm in the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. So it's called OHCHR. It's often confused with UNHCR. So we tend to refer to it as the Human Rights Office. Mm. Um, and it's a very strange creature within the UN system. It's kind of it's part of the central UN secretariat that's headed by Antonio Guterres, so the kind of the very bureaucratic end, but it has this simultaneous dual function of being an independent body that's meant to pontificate about human rights issues. Um, so yeah, it, it, it exists in a sort of legal twilight in a sense where it's never quite clear if it's acting independently or if it's acting as part of the UN secretariat, which is part of the problem in a way. Um, so part of the job of it is to act as secretariat to the UN Human Rights Council. Um, so ensure that those meetings go well, fulfill all of the mandates given by those meetings. Um, if the member states vote that they want to report on a particular issue, then the bureaucrats would write that. Um, I've written reports that issues sort of including counterterrorism, the death penalty, the impact of COVID on economic, social and cultural rights. Um, and then on the other side, it's more the independent functions. So for a time, um, I also held, you know, I'd be almost the sort of the person writing some of the things behind the scenes around issues of the death penalty, counterterrorism, um, how to measure human rights uh, was also an issue that I've worked on uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and yeah, it, it's very diverse. Some of it is supporting treaty bodies, um, so the independent experts that look at how each member state is fulfilling its obligation under specific human rights treaties. So that could be 
the International Covenant in Civil and Political Rights, um, the Convention Against Torture, uh, a particular interest of mine, um, and you know, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. There's a wide range of different human rights treaties. And then there are other people who support the human rights experts. So those are independent experts who are appointed by the Human Rights Council um, on issues including sort of freedom of speech on maybe one side. And then sometimes there are mandates that perhaps are more politicized. Um, so unilateral course of measures, which is sort of official term for sanctions effectively. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a very varied office. And, 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 and for folks not familiar with the UN system, and even for folks like me who are skeptical of the efficacy of that system, even with the problems with the UN system, a lot of the victims of gross violations of human rights, genocide, crimes against humanity, terms, by the way, that we do not throw out there as lawyers, as Emma will talk about now easily, because they're, mm -hmm. they're terms that have to be used judiciously, cautiously, and well-documented. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the people who appeal, a lot of the victims, alleged victims who appeal to these bodies come from places that have no rule of law or very little rule of law. There is no due process. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no courts. There are no human rights tribunals. There are no places that they could turn to. So it's almost a place of last resort for a lot of people. So what Emma's going to share with us today and some of this outrageous behavior that she's been able to uncover at the UN uh, human rights system makes it especially egregious because when, you, when you're out here in the trenches working with people who are going through these struggles, and by the way, there's not enough lawyers uh, to help the people who are going through these struggles, and you have a body that was created during, in, the, in the ashes, literally, of World War II, who should know better. We're trying to prevent some of the horrible things that happened during World War II from happening again. What Emma uncovered there, and by the way, she's been at this since 2013. Um, and one of the first questions I will ask you is, why did it take seven years for you to get whistleblower status? Because uh, <laughs> what, 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 that's, that's, Frank, it's kind of odd, it's, especially given what you uncovered. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's something that struck me about what you've been talking about raises this question about what are we investing in? What, what, are, what are American taxpayers? We are, America is the, one of the largest contributors, if not the largest contributor to date, depending on what formula you use, it's still the same, to that system. And you said recently, there has never at any point, and I'm reading from something you wrote, there has never at any point been any investigation whatsoever into the policy of handing names of human rights activists to the Chinese delegation. And we're gonna I, I kind of throw through a lot out there, but I, I did that on purpose because I want people here in the States to hear this. Um, what Emma has uncovered is extremely serious because the people who are victims and, and who don't have places to go, who then go to the UN and trust people like Emma and others to handle their information carefully, uh, are put in position sometimes that betray a trust. And anybody mm -hmm. who has represented a victim knows that you have certain ethical duties to these people. Uh, and it seems to be out of whack, frankly, at the UN. So tell us briefly, for, again, imagine someone listening to this has never heard of this. What yeah. led you to say something like this? Because this is pretty serious. Um, the fact that it's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's part of my job to speak up about this. Um, I think UN will support that. So I joined the UN in 2012 and in early 2013, um, I was transferred sort of at my request because I've been doing a very bureaucratic role um, to support uh, participation of NGOs, non-governmental organizations in the Human Rights Council. And I think it was my first week in that post, I was forwarded an email from the Chinese delegation asking to know whether specific dissidents were coming. And we'd had such an email actually from the Turkish delegation in the previous session. And the response had been, we don't hand over that, that, that information, it's against the rules. And it was immediately communicated to me that this was open for discussion because it was China. Um, and I was incensed. I mean, this is the absolute opposite of what we should be doing. So, so, basically, so, so, so basically, Emma, so, so, so see if I'm getting this. So there were mm -hmm. people who were alleging that they had their human rights, their fundamental rights had been abused. Yeah. They were going to the UN to testify about these abuses. Mm -hmm. And you were basically told, uh, well, 
China, you could give the names ahead of time to China. Um, well, yeah, I mean, basically my boss, and it turned out all of this was a farce later for my benefit. Um, the reason they were pretending to have a discussion was that I'd raised objections. This has actually been going on since 2006. My boss wrote an email in which he said that we didn't want to exacerbate China's mistrust and therefore that the UN would hand the names to China. I immediately reported this all the way up the food chain to the then High Commissioner for Human Rights. And at every point, I was told that I should trust my boss's political judgment. I kept pointing out that this is not a political issue, it's a legal one. Right. There are rules set by the member states of the Human Rights Council on how the Human Rights Council operates, the same way as there are rules set by the Security Council on how the Security Council operates. And the UN response for the last now eight years has been that UN staff members at will can decide to ignore the rules set by member states. I mean, hmm. it's extraordinary, hmm. just in terms of rule of law, how legal systems work. Um, so, I mean, from the outset, I said, we cannot give names to China, but we must tell the people that China is asking about them so that they can assess any risk. Um, and I was basically overruled. And in March 2013, four names were handed to the Chinese delegation. And those people actually much later in the story in 2019 testified on my behalf in an internal UN tribunal against the UN. That's amazing. And Dolkanisa, um, who's the head of the World Uyghur Congress, testified that when China knows in advance that he's planning to attend a human rights meeting, his family in China receives visits from the Chinese police and is forced to call him um, to tell him not to come. His family members are arbitrarily arrested and detained. Um, both of his parents have now died, one of them in the concentration camp system in Xinjiang. Um, he has variously been arrested by national authorities at the request of China. Um, China has put out an Interpol red notice on him. Um, other people testified that their family members were forced to call them while another family member was being tortured by the Chinese authorities in the background. I mean, this is not a bureaucratic issue. This is not some small bureaucratic decision taken in a corridor in Geneva. This is active endangerment of individuals by the UN office that is mandated to protect them. And what Emma's talking about happens, unfortunately, not just with China. We've had people that we've represented as part of our organization uh, in places like Cuba, for example, that the moment anybody from Cuba testifies, even remotely, or they manage to travel to Geneva to testify, the consequences for these people just by showing up is, is could be, well, you, you can get locked up. And I know people in Cuba who have been locked up for doing such a thing. But what she's imagine what, what, what Emma's saying is that they were trying to give the Chinese advance warning to engage in exactly what they did, which was an intimidation campaign. So they didn't show up to begin with. And, mm -hmm. and when they did show up, I'm pretty sure bad things happen. In fact, bad things have happened. And it's pretty well documented that bad things have happened. And Emma was following the rules and she is paying up. A pretty high price. I think she she probably will disagree with me because it sounds like she's enjoying what she's doing and she is enjoying what she's doing. Uh, but what she but what she has been doing is very stressful and it takes a lot of courage to do something like that because most people would look away. So why why didn't you look away? Why haven't you looked away? Curious. Um, I just don't I actually I've never understood that question in a way. I think the question should be the other way around. Why did my colleagues go along with this? This has been happening since 2006. Mm. I found out about it in 2013 and immediately reported it. Why between 2006 and 2013 did the 50 or so people who must have known this was happening not report it? Why am I the only person that's reported it since 2013? I mean, mm. I, my title is UN Human Rights Officer. I have a duty to report this. But I see it as part of my job. I see it as doing my job to report it. Um, and I have been incredibly disappointed with 
the way that it's like the UN is incapable of looking at the bigger picture. Hmm. Everything is reduced down to a tiny bureaucratic issue. So each individual bureaucrat that I report it to will try to find some excuse for this. The, the urge is always to um, cover up, hmm. make sure no one finds out. Um, and, you know, I, I think you're correct. I think actually, you know, I, it's been fairly hellish for many years, but there's a certain freedom to accepting that you're going to be fired. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's that you, you've had that. It looks like from what we've read in the, um, and we're going to take a quick break, uh, mm -hmm. but we've read uh, your, your odyssey through the UN Dispute Tribunal, which we'd like you to explain to us briefly what that is when we come back. And yeah. you've just stuck with it, though. And that's what we want to go into a little bit about mm -hmm. how this process internally has operated, because here in the States, by the way, there's a law, I'm sure you know about this law, that statute it's a statute and of course it's a law it requires that when we have situations like this the united states withhold funding at a level of 15 percent at least mm -hmm. uh, from these bodies until they get their oversight and compliance house in order and with this with you know there's been other cases of whistleblowing at the un uh what makes this one especially uh, horrible is its connection to the genocide of Uyghur peoples and other religious minorities in Western China and other parts of China. And the term genocide, that's a serious term. It's not a mm -hmm. term you hear thrown around all the time and you, it should not be used loosely. And when the US government designated and made that finding of genocide and crimes against humanity, uh, there, 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 there's some repercussions. Things should follow from that that we'll talk about later. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll continue talking with Emma Riley, uh, a UN human rights officer who's talking with us today from Geneva. We'll be right back. Emma Riley, a UN human rights officer joining us today from Geneva. Before we took that break, we were chatting about your journey through this whistleblowing experience. We're going to get back to the genocide issue in a minute, but mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about this UN dispute tribunal. You've been communicating with them back and forth, and there's been a case filed. You've also co contacted US government officials, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, Congressman uh, Chris Smith, a longtime champion of human rights, Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, who also follows the human rights issue closely, and some other folks. But we'll talk about those folks in a second, but what is the UN Dispute Tribunal? And you've been exchanging a lot of paper with them. So where does that stand right now? Um, well, it's, it's all on hold. This is quite an interesting um, indication of how the UN feels about rule of law when it's applied to the UN. The UN can't actually be sued because of diplomatic immunity. They were supposed to set up some kind of ability to sue the UN in 1946, but apparently they've been quite busy um, for the interim <laughs> period and haven't got around to doing that. So the only court that the UN can actually be taken to is an internal employment tribunal. So I can't sue the UN for endangering human rights defenders. I mm. can only sue the UN for its actions against me as a result of reporting that. So I took three court cases against the UN. Um, all basically related to the same couple of decisions. The UN put out a press release about this in 2017, where they admitted the practice, lied about how it's applied, and then defamed me for good measure in the last paragraph. So, you know, that gives a legal action. Mm -hmm. um, and I won the first of those three cases, um, which required that it founded the Secretary General, and we're talking about the man himself, not the kind of, you know, it's often used as a term to discuss the UN administration. Um, had dis actively decided not to apply the rules in my case um, when he refused to even give me a response as to whether or not he was going to investigate misconduct about defaming me in a press release. Um, and my other two cases were heard by an Australian judge, Rowan Downing, um, a very distinguished judge, used to be on the Cambodia War Crimes Tribunal, um, in June of 2019. On the 10th of July, 2019, the Geneva Registrar of the Court approached Judge Downing and told him that he was now functus officio hmm. and should immediately stop ruling in my cases. Hmm. 
the UN as a party to the case quite literally removed a judge with zero notice. What the, what the heck is that? I mean, what is this, a, exactly. banana, a banana republic? I mean, who goes around removing judges like that? Well, I mean, in response to the first case, the UN literally rewrote its policy. So I had managed to get a ruling that they had to decide whether or not to investigate because I had shown sufficient grounds for an investigation. So the wow. UN rewrote that policy within four months so that now the UN has absolute discretion as to whether or not to investigate any misconduct it doesn't want to investigate. Um, That's remarkable. It is really, you know, autocrats would dream of a system like this. That's what it sounds like. I mean, I, we, we have, we've, we've represented clients before unlawfully imprisoned in foreign lands. I'm going, I'm going to leave the countries out. But this is exactly what they do when yeah. they want to get a decision that they want. They'll just tinker, remove a judge, put a new one in, change the rules exactly. midship. And how, how do you, and how do you, how did you, before you complete that story there, how do you keep your composure during these fights with these people? Um, I mean, I think that that is actually the moment to which I lost any hope that the UN would ever do the right thing. Um, oh, you're still in it, though. You're still fighting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, if they want rid of me, they have to fire me. I, um, <laughs> the UN has been telling member states for years that everything's fine. I'm not being retaliated against. I have functions. You know, I keep asking them, what are those functions? Um, and I think it's actually important to show just how broken the system is. I think mm. the only thing that will inspire reform is to sort of sit it out to the end. And you mentioned the other whistleblowers in the UN. Everyone's always sort of effectively, once you're placed under investigation, once the UN starts the process of trying to fire you, people become quiet. That's what the UN wants us to do. Um, they have a system that they've entirely designed that is designed to make sure no genuine public interest whistleblower ever receives protection. Um, and they basically rely on a system where they write the rules, rewrite them at will. If there is an investigation, they get to choose two investigators from among the entire UN staff or any consultant they feel like. So they handpick investigators and instruct them to find against you. They can fire a judge at 24 hours notice. Um, I think it's important to try a different strategy. No whistleblower has ever tried a very public strategy before of documenting in real time what the UN is doing and what the latest master nations are. There's never going to be reform if all of this continues to happen behind closed doors. And there are rules that the UN abuses about airing employment grievances in public. So I'm always very careful to make sure that I'm phrasing it as misconduct. Mm. Um, and by having that kind of rule, they basically ensure that anyone that's reported wrongdoing is silent. They intimidate people. They make people's lives hell for years. And then at the end of all of that, they kind of come in with a monetary offer when they've exhausted the person to go away and sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I think it's actually important to document the ways that the UN operates when people come forward reporting wrongdoing, whether it's child sex abuse, whether it's handing into dissidents to China, whether it's sexual harassment, uh, accepting bribes. The system is broken and it needs desperately to change. Um, you were saying at the beginning, at the introduction to the podcast about a lot of people feel that the UN has lost its way. I'm one of them. Mm. Um, but I do think that if the UN Charter were applied, it would be a very important organization. So I think it's just important, you know, if the, if the UN wants rid of me, they have to fire me. And all that I am under investigation for at the moment is the fact of blowing the whistle. Well, the, the UN, UN can't yeah, accuse me yeah, of anything else. Yeah, no, they can't. And, and the UN needs more Emma Rileys in there uh, standing up for the rule of law because that's ultimately what separates us from the savages, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. when you and I think there are people inside that organization who are savages who shouldn't be holding those posts. You don't have to respond to that. I can speak that way. You can't. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I've been monitoring that organization for a long time. And as someone who mm -hmm. has, has dealt with uh, worked with and counseled victims of human gross violations of human rights, crimes against humanity, and worse. Uh, it's it's uh, a terrible thing to hear that 
an entity that was created to protect fundamental rights or at least be a, a guardian of fundamental rights. That's the role I see the UN as. They're supposed to be out there as, as, a, as a sentinel and exposing an accountability that internally it can't follow the basic rules and procedures and the lawyers inside that organization. And I know there's a lot of good ones in there. Uh, people, human rights officers like you uh, yeah. are being, uh, uh, you know, shut down in this horrible way. And the body that's policing this, the body you're supposed to go to for dispute resolution is just as corrupt as some of these people inside that. Again, you don't have to say that I can say they're corrupt because to me, that's corruption. When you when you switch judges midship, that's corruption. Uh, you change the rules of engagement during a procedure. That's corruption. Um uh, that, ha that has to change. And I want people here in Washington who are listening to this, and I'm going to make sure they get this podcast, but you need to contact Emma Riley. This She has to testify before Congress. She needs to tell her story. We're going to at least make sure that people here listen to what, you're, what you have to say. Those three court cases. So before we get to the genocide mm -hmm. and everything else, your situation now, uh, you've been at this battle for seven years. You mm -hmm. have uh, these three court cases. You got two battles going on here. You're, you're fighting for yourself and you're fighting for some other people. Mm -hmm. um, let's focus on you for a minute. These three court cases, you say they're still in there, they're still pending. Do you think this is a way to resolve this, uh, at least your battle, you know, the part that oh, you're struggling with? Absolutely not. I mean, um, the interesting part was I, I obviously had to send at one point when the Secretary General refused to reinstate the judge, I contacted the judge and said, would you be a witness of fact? Mm. So I now have the former judge who heard my cases willing to testify that his removal constitutes removal by a party to wow. the case of the judge. Wow. Um, <laughs> and the, the new judge simply refuses to hear the evidence. Uh, she says it's irrelevant to the case. Um, I figure. mean, Go yeah, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. No, you but can't. even worse than that, there's another body within the UN. It's called the Ethics Office. Um, oh. And one of my cases is actually against them because of their determinations. So I sort of went to them and said, right, I'm being retaliated against as a whistleblower. Here's what I blew the whistle on. This is clearly bad. And here's the retaliation. And they decided that I had no, it was impossible in their view for a UN human rights officer to believe that breaking written rules set by member states in order to provide China with information that could only be used for the purpose of human rights violations it's unreasonable of me to think there could be a problem with that. Wow. So no one, nobody could ever reasonably believe that, that was something I should report and therefore it doesn't constitute a protected activity. They gave several justifications for this, all of which are sort of worse than the previous one. First, they said that the simple fact that, no, that my reports did not lead to it changing meant it could not have been misconduct. So effectively, the ethics office thinks that the UN should operate as an autocracy. We can all ignore the written rules. If the managers do nothing, the managers as perfect ethical beings must be right, and therefore the written rules are wrong, and therefore the staff member is wrong. Then I got another determination after that one that was sort of the final one at that point. This was in 2018. And that took it one step further. So it was a sort of an appeal to a different ethics officer. So this one's from UNICEF. This is the person that looks at all of the sex abuse cases. Mm -hmm. She decided that the principles of do no harm, confidentiality, and the independence of UN staff so that we shouldn't take instructions from government. It was unreasonable of me to think that any of those basic principles could ever, under any circumstances, take precedence over the possibility of a better political relationship with the Chinese government. Um, I actually had calls, though, in early 2020 to take another case to the ethics office. Because the thing about being retaliated against for so long is that you start to sort of Google the main retaliators. And I discovered that the Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights at the time, a woman called Kate Gilmore, um, had been lying about her qualifications. Uh, her official biography said she had two master's degrees. She has none. And oh, a go, go figure. She lied. She lied on her resume. Well, certainly the public biography that was published when she was hired contained lies. Yes, I go figure. I can only assume where those came from. Hmm. Um, so yeah, she claimed to have two master's degrees. She didn't have any master's degree. Um, so I reported that, and 
that was just before I was forcibly transferred to a post that doesn't exist, has no functions and against which I remain. Um, so I did another complaint to the ethics office and said, right, I reported her for not having qualifications and within weeks, she transferred me to a post that doesn't exist. And this was despite, you know, promises that were made in court that I would be transferred to a real post. So, um, basi so basically, do you consider this retaliation for what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Um, but then I put in a new complaint and this went to the only ethics officer I found in the UN that has any perceptible ethics. And he put in writing that it was very clear to him that I had done the right thing and that my concern had at all times been to protect people against human rights abuses, whereas the concern of the UN management had very clearly been to improve its relationship with the Chinese government. And he said that I should immediately receive full protection, um, that I should immediately be transferred and that there should be an investigation into the retaliation against me. Um, I then, you know, I was quite pleased about this. And there's been all this rhetoric in recent years uh, from the Secretary General saying that he protects whistleblowers and that he insists that whistleblowers will receive protection. That status has made no difference whatsoever. I'm an officially recognized whistleblower and I have received zero protection. In fact, I named the person who is currently leading the retaliation against me for the purposes of ensuring the investigators looked in the right direction. And I said, it's Catherine Pollard, the Undersecretary General for Management. I said that in an email that I actually copied to her on the 10th of December. On the 8th of January, Catherine Pollard herself, despite no legal authority to do so, placed me under investigation for the act of blowing the whistle. I had told her that I was due to appear in a Dutch court on the Monday, on the Friday, she put me under investigation, specifically for having blown the whistle on this to member states when it, everything internal failed. Oh, this is, um, oh, there's a lot here. Where do we start? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, I mean, for me, it's all the same thing. It's rule of law. It is rule of the law. The UN I, pays me to advocate for the rule of law everywhere else and will not apply a single principle of it internally. And, and by the way, for listeners who, who may not be familiar with the UN structure, uh, the Undersecretary for uh, Undersecretary General for Management is a very senior, senior post mm -hmm. inside the UN system. This is not uh, uh, some low-level official. We're talking about the number three or number four at the number UN. Three. Yeah, so it's it's a very senior post and somebody who has been granted a lot of authorities and obviously uh, could be abusing that power of that position of trust. Uh, but Emma, you know, the good thing is that you're not backing down. And that, I think, is half the battle. You have a lot of moral courage and it's, it's commendable that you want to lean into that fight because you have your own battle, but you're also doing this on behalf of people who put their trust in the UN system. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Emma about this situation with China and why she thinks the system um, has been rigged. I think it's been rigged. I don't want her to say it's been rigged. I think it's been rigged. And they're playing politics with human rights, which we're not supposed to be doing, especially not with people who are suffering immensely in Western China right now. We'll be right back. We're back. Last year, uh, well, beginning of this year, uh, there was a determination made by the United States of genocide and crimes against humanity uh, by China against Uyghur minorities, uh, the Muslim minority population in Western China and other groups. I, I haven't read the file because they haven't published a file of findings of what evidence was used. But when the United States puts their name behind that serious of a designation, it needs to be taken uh, seriously. In fact, now during the Biden administration, so that was done by the Trump administration. Now during the Biden administration, one of the hallmarks of their foreign policy is going to be putting human rights 
at the center of U.S. foreign policy. That's that's not pablum. That's that I'm reading to you what their policy they say is going uh, to be. Uh, so they're going to bring the U.N. human rights focus. We're supposed to now go back, I think, to the U.N. Human Rights Council. Uh, and we have this designation out there, uh, which mm -hmm. I wish other countries had uh, quickly moved to support. But uh, Emma Riley, who is a UN human rights officer who we've been talking to now for about uh, 45 minutes, and I hope she'll stick with us for one more segment after this, because I think we could record several podcasts with you and we, and we wouldn't be done. But uh, we're going to get into now the first half. We spoke a little bit about what things, struggles she's been going through in the UN system. But now we're going to talk a little bit about this issue, uh, the things that she saw, that she blew the whistle on, how she became to be that whistleblower in 2020, and what can be done about helping these people who came to this organization and were targeted by people within the organization. But that's what happened, I think. When you hand over the names to your alleged abuser ahead of time in violation of the rules, you, you are committing a problem. I think it makes our case, Frank. It helps make our case that China's up to no good. So share with our listeners, Emma, what you know, what do you see, what, what do you see going on there? And what happens when someone goes to the UN? For those who don't know how it works, and they say, look, I want to testify, and they go through this process and they want to make some type of a you know, how does that work? And why is that so important? Well, a couple of weeks in advance, they have to write to the UN to get a sort of badge to enter the premises. Um, you know, as you know, the, the UN is basically international territory. Um, so you, you need a passport generally to get in. Um, so in order to make sure that their name's on a list to enter the building, they have to apply for accreditation a few weeks in advance. And that's supposed to be basically a sort of bureaucratic system. Um, that information about who is applying for accreditation is not supposed to be shared with any member states. Um, obviously, part of that is people's own safety, and the Human Rights Council actually has a written rule on this. It says that if you want to know the accreditation status of any particular individual, you have to ask in front of all the other member states, or in front of what's termed the expanded bureau, it's kind of a management body made up of a smaller number of ambassadors. Um, but basically, you know, that should be an entirely bureaucratic process with no political element to it. Um, Obviously, a lot of states would like to know who's coming. Um, and when China asked, they, the Chinese delegation did not think it had a right to this information. They termed it a favor in writing. And now a favor is something that's very easy to say no to. You know, the UN could have done exactly what it did when Turkey asked and said, well, no, we're not doing that. Mm. Um, and what happens basically, a lot of what was reported to me was that the individuals where their names were handed over would report being followed around Geneva um, by Chinese agents. Now, I, I kind of initially thought that sounded relatively unlikely, but there's recently been a big scandal in Switzerland about the fact that the Swiss government was allowing Chinese agents to operate on its territory without any sort of reason or oversight. Um, they, there would be efforts by the Chinese diplomats even in the room to throw people out. So the first time that I actually met Dolkanisa in person was I had been sitting on the podium of the Human Rights Council because when NGOs were speaking, sorry, non-governmental organizations were speaking, I would be sitting next to the president advising them on any objections that were raised, etc. Um, and I saw this something weird happening at the back of the room where UN security were approaching what looked to be NGO representatives and escorting them from the room. So given that that was part of my portfolio, I ran to the back of the room and basically asked UN security what they thought they were doing. And it turns out that the Chinese delegation had approached UN security and told them to get rid of this NGO from the room. And I sort of said, look, I'm the person <laughs> from the secretariat who decided, you know, who knows who's accredited, who has, you know, been checked the badges and, you know, why are you taking instructions from the Chinese government in this? Um, so, I mean, those are kind of the things that happen in Geneva, in the building. Um, the governments will interrupt the speeches many times to stop people from ever having a coherent speech. So nobody really gets what the speech is about because China's interrupted sort of 20 times in a single speech. Um, 
but that all peels into insignificance when you look at what happens to people's family members. And I mean, I spoke a little about that earlier, you know, hideous stories about people being arbitrarily detained, people's family members disappearing. Um, you know, Dulcan, one of Dulcanese's brothers hasn't been seen in years. Um, Rebia Kadir, there was an amnesty um, urgent action about her where it described the torture of family members in front of other family members being forced to call her and she's in the US um, and test, you know, tell her what was happening. Um, her gang is another one where it's public information their name was handed over. She's the wife of Gao Shisheng. He has written a book about how the Chinese authorities tortured him and he recounts in that book that at times the torture was for the specific purpose of trying to ensure that he would instruct his family members not to speak out. And, you know, there's another diplomatic element to this, where two of those people I've cited are resident in the US. I don't know if they have citizenship or not. Dolkanisa is resident in Germany and has citizenship there. So you have UN bureaucrats actively breaking the rules set by member states in order to hand over names of citizens and residents of other countries to the Chinese government. Um, and I think actually one of the reasons that the UN was so keen to fire the judge in my case was that despite initial reluctance, he did hear evidence in this point. And he opined from the bench something that I very much agree with, which is where did they get the authority to do that? Right. You know, in, it's like in the State Department, with a new government, with a new administration, political appointees come in to make sure that what they say goes that the rules that are adopted by the new administration are applied in practice down the sort of bureaucracy. The UN just doesn't have that. It has a lot of unelected bureaucrats with basically absolute power um, or who have taken absolute power upon themselves without any external oversight. So the only way that governments can ever find out what's going on internally is whistleblowers. Um, and I mean, this policy is just so beyond the pale. But what's interesting is that the UN just, in court, the UN position is, this is ongoing, this is fine. Somehow this list is public, therefore handing it to China weeks in advance is fine. That's their legal position. When member states ask about it, they simply lie. And I've provided member states with the evidence that the UN administration is lying to them. Um, and really there have been many moments when I kind of ask myself, what else can I do? I'm always looking for, you know, what is it that I need to say to make people understand how serious this is? And it's like I live, live between these sort of two alternate realities. There's externally when I tell people and they are appropriately morally shocked. And then internally where it's presented as this kind of small bureaucratic issue and nobody looks at the bigger picture of the impact on people's family members, the impact on the ability of people to speak out, um, because that's obviously China's aim here, is to scare people into not attending Human Rights Council. It's the only forum in the world where a Chinese dissident can talk directly to a Chinese diplomat, and the Chinese diplomats do not want that happening. Um, and they will go to extreme lengths to stop people speaking out. But it's just so strange to me that I am still fighting this fight eight years later. And that there isn't any way of holding the UN to account. Well, you, you definitely have made a, an impact. And those of us out here who monitor the human rights system and who follow the human rights bar uh, understand what you're going through and as i said you got two battles you call it, you know those two realities you know you're, you're in there you know fighting for what you believe is right and that's at a at a great personal sacrifice i mean you may not see it now but it's it's a, it's a lot of work that you're doing i think it's part of your mission that's why you became a u.n human rights officer and and you and you came to the 
as a lawyer uh, to this space willingly. That's what you wanted to do. Uh, but also you're talking, you're speaking up for the voiceless, for people who uh, do not have anywhere else to go. And uh, even those of us who are UN skeptics here in the States, uh, who tend to be on the ideological, you know, uh, I guess, right of the issue, uh, we recognize of all the entities at the UN, uh, this one, uh, which was one of the core reasons why the UN was created at the end of World War II, why after the Nuremberg process, the world was supposedly committed to uh, preventing you know, crimes against humanity and atrocity crimes and genocide and some really horrible things that happen daily, which we don't see. We're mostly insulated from it. The world doesn't want to see it, but people like Emma lean into this and it's, it's very uh, a small group of people who do. Uh, they need support, they need backup. So you definitely have done a lot and highlighting it, having the moral courage to highlight it. We're going to make sure that people here in Washington, in the Congress, in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, at the State Department, uh, at the Security Council, we're gonna make sure that if they haven't heard about your story, they hear about your story. Uh, because as I said at the start of the program, uh, I think the Congress especially needs to hear from you and testify and provide testimony about what you've seen, because we have laws here in our country that uh, require us. The Secretary of State is required. It's not optional. And although there is some waiver authority in the statute, when there is a situation of a clear whistleblower case and the, and the processes are being abused inside that system, we can withhold our taxpayer money from that. And yes, it's painful when those things happen to the bureaucracy, but what about the victims who speaks up for them? They need that forum. We need that space to go in there and expose alleged violations and give mm -hmm. the victim a chance to confront their accuser and let the accuser defend him or herself. Even if it's China, which I believe the communist party will lie, uh, they will kill people. They when again, Emma doesn't have to agree with this, but I, I've seen it. And we have people here in our country who have fled persecution by the Chinese communist government who are persecuted right here in America, uh, like Pastor Fu out in Texas and some others who Christians who've been persecuted yeah. in China who've been forced to flee. So we're going to take one more break and then when we come back. Uh, we're going to wrap this up and we're going to talk a little bit more about the recent uh, emails that were reported on by the Epoch Times and Emma spoke with them about the genocide and the, the, the issue of dissidents out in, in China. And then Emma will, believe it or not, she has some advice for future lawyers uh, who, cause she loves this space. And uh, I think she, she, she has some good advice for folks who are considering a career or want to get more involved with human rights. So we'll be right back with Emma Riley, a UN human rights officer in Geneva. Emma, uh, the Epoch, Epoch Times had a story this week, which we will include as a link uh, to the podcast. Had a headline, leaked emails confirm UN gave name of dissidents to the Communist Party. And it's, again, quite chilling. Uh, it doesn't say you leaked, of course. It's talking about the whole story. Whole... I, I did. I, I've admitted that to Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> so she leaked as a whistleblower. Uh, she, she is exposing some some bad stuff and defending yourself and i read this and i was i was just shocked it's come down to this uh, uh you you made a reference here which i found uh again knowing you a little better now i, I understand why you said it you said that it's criminal mm -hmm. and arguing and i would agree with her on this that the un is quote complicit in genocide yeah. can you explain to us what you mean by that Sure. Um, I'm referring actually, there's the International Law Commission um, has drafted articles of responsibility of international organizations. And I think it's Article 14, if I remember correctly. I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, that's right. But there's mm -hmm. two criteria for the UN to be complicit in an international crime. First of all, it has to be something that would constitute an international crime if the UN committed it itself. Um, that is clearly true of things like arbitrary detention, torture, and now I, I would agree with the determination of genocide. 
Um, and then the second is that it would have to be something where there kind of is kind of an active provision of information or facilitation of the act. Identifying the person is definitely facilitation. Um, you know, this is philosophy 101. The murderer knocks on your door and asks where your sister is. Do you tell them? Um, and yeah, so just, I mean, it, it's not even a difficult legal question. Um, you know, as regards to the determination of genocide itself, I think the, the research of Adrian Sense um, around forced sterilization of Uyghur women in the camps, um, even China's own statistics and birth rates that came out a few days ago that show that, you know, everywhere else birth rates are progressing normally. And in the region of Xinjiang, they have decreased by 50%. Now, given that there are also other populations in Xinjiang, how much has that decreased for the weaker population? And obviously preventing births within a group with the intention of destruction of that group is one of the definitions of genocide in the Genocide Convention. So, I mean, honestly, I, I think this is absolutely criminal behavior. Um, I have reported it internally as such. I have repeatedly asked the UN to investigate this. And as I think I also pointed out to the Epoch Times, there has never been an investigation of my actual allegations, ever. The UN in fact just admits that they're true. Um, in court, there is no argument on the facts. The facts are names are secretly handed to the Chinese delegation. The UN position is that that is somehow required and that they cannot resist the Chinese request. That is obviously utterly inconsistent with the UN's public position, with its position with member states, um, but that is their court position. And you know, the, the wonderful advantage of courts, as you know, is that it's all recorded. That's right. Yeah. Well, Emma, as we wrap up today, uh, we've really enjoyed having you. I hope you'll consider coming back. Um, I'd be happy to. <laughs> I have a, a two-part question for you as we close up, mm -hmm. and then a high note because there's a lot of folks who are wondering why should America continue? At least we have a large American audience that listens to this podcast. Why should then we continue to contribute to this uh, process? And for those people who are, especially young law students who may be considering or somebody considering a career in human rights, what's your advice to them? Um. On the why should America continue, um, I'm advocating for America to withhold the 15%. <laughs> I, I agree. And we're, and we're going to start making um, sure people I'm hear actually about advocating. that. <laughs> what I would like to see is external oversight of the UN. Um, mm. But what you were saying about the funding earlier, what's really interesting about it is that when China gives funding to the UN, it earmarks how that funding must be used. When democracies, including the US, give funding to the UN, they do not earmark how that is to be used. It is the democracies that are paying for the retaliation against me. They are paying for these expensive court cases. They are paying for them to be reheard in front of a new judge because the UN fired the judge that was going to rule in my favor. Mm. Um, they're paying for an investigation where the UN has hired back as the chief investigator into me, someone who the UN's own corrupt courts determined used investigations as a method of retaliation. The UN has decided that's the ideal person to hire back to investigate me. And I would say he's probably earning a minimum of 20,000 US dollars a month. Um, it is the US and the democracies that are paying those fees. Because when China gives money to the UN, it says you have to use it very strictly for this. Um, so as I said, my argument is basically there are parts of the UN that work. Um, they tend to be the parts away from headquarters, to be honest. I have personally been able to achieve things, um, make sure that minors who were imprisoned as adults for you know, stealing a mobile phone and had been in there for five years got out of prison in some hideous detention conditions in the global south. I've worked on the cases of people who were sentenced to death for exercising their freedom of expression and we have managed to sort of help get those people out of prison. Good work can be done in the UN. And the reason I wanted to join the organization essentially was that I was becoming very tired, especially as director of an NGO, of advocating for the UN staff to advocate to the government for something. 
Um, and I sort of thought, you know, I'll cut out the middleman and be the UN representative myself. Um, and it is possible to achieve great things just with the kind of, essentially the moral authority of the title. Mm. The problem is when any system without any external oversight whatsoever tends to corruption. Um, and I think my case more than demonstrates that the UN is incapable of policing itself. There are already within the UN system the, the tools to try to change that. I mean, get rid of the ethics office, get rid of the office of internal oversight services as it's called, make those external bodies. Uh, we know how to do this. We advocate for it throughout the world. To make sure that someone's independent, you give them a fixed term for which they're acting and you don't allow them to reapply. <laughs> you know, we know what the systems are that works. They're, they're you know, like I said, the UN pays me or paid me at one point in part to advocate for the rule of law worldwide. Um, so, I mean, there are ways of doing it, but certainly I don't think the US should be writing checks without ensuring that there's some kind of checks and balances in the system. Um, yeah, because and, it's, yeah, and it's I would add, yeah, I agree with you. And I would add, before I forget, we haven't even talked about this today, and you don't have to opine on this, but I would go one step further that any individuals that are engaged in this sort of corruption, because this is corruption and undermining the rule of law should be sanctioned by the United States. And although I know that there are some exceptions under the UN headquarters agreement uh, that may protect some of these people, doesn't mean the protections there forever. And doesn't mean that once you step down from that post, you're gonna be scot-free clear. I think anyone engaged in this type of corruption undermining rule of law and complicity in genocide, they need to be put on notice by the stakeholder nation, by the state parties, and said, well, you may have protection now because you have these posts, but guess what? Maybe not. Maybe when you leave, you may get sanctioned by the United States, or maybe other actions could be brought against you. You cannot use this shield of sovereign immunity to do certain things. And as you said correctly, I do believe that they are violating their own rules and there is complicity in genocide and crimes against humanity for some of the things they've been doing. Exactly. And I mean, the thing is as well that, that you know, I don't know why the UN gets away with such a broad interpretation of functional immunity. It's functional immunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have, you know, even on my ID card for Switzerland, it says in the back of it, you know, the trans well, it says it in French, but the translation is this person enjoys functional immunity in the exercise of her functions. How is it in the exercise of our functions to be complicit in genocide? How is it in the exercise of our functions to break all UN rules? I would argue that people can be held responsible now. Um, I don't think there's a need to wait for them to leave office. And I also think that there's a, a moral obligation, frankly, on the Secretary General to ensure that people who have broken the rules to such an extent that it has caused others to be subject to human rights violations are held responsible and subject you know, at minimum to disciplinary sanctions. Yes, yeah. at minimum, definitely at minimum. Well, I, Emma, uh, we're getting close to wrapping up and again, we could keep going, uh, chatting with you about all of this. And uh, before we break away, uh, what advice do you have for future lawyers or future human rights activists, anyone out there listening to this who, who thinks, wow, this is not, not for me. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you, what's your advice to them? Um, don't be too discouraged by this, but I think the world does tend towards justice. Um, you know, I, I, I think that longer term, um, you know, we're seeing increasing numbers of states heading towards democratic reforms. We're seeing improvements in the rule of law. Um, you know, sometimes you get caught up in the kind of the, the cases that are going backwards, but I think the overall trend is in the right direction. Mm. I think it's really important that people who are passionate about this do give it a shot. Um, you know, the UN has far too many bureaucrats in it and we need to kind of make sure that the people who are passionate are getting a chance. I'm not gonna pretend it's a perfect organization and I'm also not gonna pretend it's the only place to do human rights. Um, I think it's so important to have people, particularly kind of coming into the UN with extensive experience elsewhere. Um, one thing I think that unites all the whistleblowers in the UN is that we all did other stuff first. Um, the person responsible for this decision of handing me into China 
started in the UN as an intern and has never worked anywhere else. Wow. Um, I think that can really color people's perception of what's important. Um, I would encourage people to get involved with grassroots organizations, um, practice law, represent the individuals who don't have representation. Um, you know, even if you're thinking of going into law and, you know, as, as we both did at some point, you know, going into the big law, pro bono works great. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people that are in desperate need of proper representation that have excellent cases but aren't being properly represented. Find the injustice that makes you passionate and find a way of working on it. Um, somebody will pay you to do that. Um, you just need to sort of find where they are. Um, if they aren't there yet, find a philanthropist. Um, but I think it's just so important not to rule it out as an option. It's incredibly rewarding when it works. And, you know, even in all of this, even while the battle was happening, there were still those victories. Um, you know, in, I worked for a time um, just after the Ebola crisis in Guinea. And there was a child that was being held in an adult prison and just seeing him reunited with his family when he was released. Those are the moments that are why we do this. Amen. You save well, saving you save a life, you 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 add to the to the process of justice and it it's cumulative, I believe, and I think you would agree it over time. The more good you do, the better the, the world becomes, the better the system can be. And your and basically your message is don't become distracted with these these occasional bad stories. Um, mm. And you've been in a big a big bad story for seven years, eight years now coming up. But it looks like uh, you, you may be having some resolution coming. And I do think you've done quite a bit. So you've definitely made your contribution. And I hope to our friends in Congress. I've said this two or three times. I'm going to say it again. Our friends here in Capitol Hill uh, would listen to this invite Emma to come testify, uh, have her testify on the record. I think she'd agree to it. Would is that be, that, I think after you, I think it's yes, but Emma probably would do this on the record. And uh, Oh, absolutely. And I'm absolutely <laughs> happy to provide all of the written evidence. I have yeah. eight years worth. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they need to see it. Uh, I think it's overdue. And there's a lot of um, nonpartisan support uh, on the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to uh, move product and something like this needs to be studied, especially in light of America's recognition and designation of genocide and crimes against humanity happening in that uh, region of China. Now, China's not gonna give up. They're gonna keep at it and they're gonna keep making Emma's life miserable. That's fine. I think Emma can handle herself. Uh, I think now we have to help folks like Emma uh, shine a light on this abuse and hopefully send the message to the persecutors that they're not gonna get away with it. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, Emma, look, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a great weekend. We're doing this on a Friday. This will come out on Tuesday. And um, we appreciate your time and you're welcome whenever you want to share your story with us. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for all of your work in this area as well. Yeah.